Welcome to Season 2 of the Preoccupation Podcast. This season explores the mid to late 19th century of Ottoman Palestine, and, uh, and it takes us on a journey with stops in Istanbul, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and, of course, everywhere in Palestine. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, first of all, thank you. You can do so by following the link in the episode description. You can also find me on Instagram at preoccupationpod. Otherwise, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians. There never was, there never will be. So welcome back, everyone, to the Preoccupation Podcast. Uh, I'm so honored to have Dr. Usama Makdisi with us. Uh, I benefited greatly from his book, The Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame, and the Making of the Modern Arab World. And uh, out of order, I am currently reading, I'm about three quarters through one of the best titled books I've ever seen, which is Artillery of Heaven. Uh, which you actually wrote before the age of coexistence. Um, Dr. Mukhtasi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, would you l- care to take a moment to, uh, to briefly introduce yourself, to introduce your work? Uh, I'd like to allow the, the scholars to introduce themselves um, rather than doing it myself. So to, to whatever extent that you'd like to, please, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, obviously, I'm a professor of history. Um, I come from the Mashriq, from Lebanon. My mother is Palestinian. My father is Lebanese. I grew up um, in Beirut during the civil war there, and um, that had a profound impact on me, obviously, inevitably. And I've, I've sort of pursued sort of the writing of modern Arab history in, in, with an eye to humanize uh, and historicize uh, the peoples of that world. Uh, who have been um, consistently orientalized and demonized in the West. And so the, on the one hand, sort of I'm, I'm constantly responding to this, this uh, persistent, ruthless orientalism. And on the other hand, also responding to what I see, especially in, in the era we're living in now, sort of we can think of it as a new Arab dark age, the post, you know, post U.S. invasion of Iraq, but of course it actually predates the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the sort of collapse of the mashlip, um, the, the dissolution. Um, of course, the, the, in one sense, it goes back to the end of the Nakba of 1948, but, but really it's post-1967. Um, it's also the Lebanese Civil War, the, 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 the crushing of the Arab Springs, the Arab Spring, the, the crushing of emancipation throughout the region, and the sense of despair and self-loathing that people have in the region. Part of it, of course, is understandable because it is a desperate situation. On the other hand, there's also a profound, um, I think, disconnect between um, an extraordinary history 
uh, and not just a medieval or ancient history, but a modern history of coexistence that I think people cynically discount and dismiss uh, because they are so desperate, I think. And again, I understand the despair, but I don't think that we should give in to, especially as scholars who are privileged to, to have the ability to write about this region, we should sort of, um, so that's that's in a nutshell what what uh, how I would introduce myself. Professor that's of History, uh, an Arab American Educational Foundation Chair of Arab Studies at Rice University, at least for the for the you know you know it's my time at Rice is coming to a close and I'm moving very soon to oh. uh, to a new institution. Um, that uh, so that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's <laughs> well, what gets me out of bed in the morning is actually my family. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I actually should have said I have two yeah. young children and there's a possibility yeah. that there will be some banging on the door. So Yeah, yeah no worries. I, I understand I completely. Yeah. You know, you mentioned um, the, the invasion of Iraq and the cultural despair that, that followed. And mm -hmm. not too long ago, I was sitting down with my, with my dad. Of course, I mean, the, the war in Iraq was probably the single most transformative uh, experience for me as a, as a teenager. And, you know, my dad and I were saying, can you believe that it's almost been 20 years? And I think the reason why it feels like just yesterday is because it never really felt like we were able to close that chapter because it never felt like the war ended. Correct. Because the war doesn't end. Yeah, the war doesn't end for the people who live. I mean, the people who are impacted and, and have lived through this war. Uh, Iraqis, first and foremost, in the case of the invasion of Iraq, um, you know, the Americans can withdraw their troops. And, and for, for most Americans, of course, Iraq is the past tense. Right. But, but for everyone who has any sort of intimate relationship to this part of the world and to peoples in this part of the world, whether family or friends or, you know, anything, of course, it's an ongoing trauma. I, um, I want to start by asking a, a, a quick question, I guess, about your uh, first book of the two that, that I've read, which is Artillery of Heaven. And... The general premise of the book is a, it's an introduction to the moment that American Puritan missionaries make landfall in the Levant, where they come in contact with, um, I guess the way that you describe it is a, is a Christian orthodoxy that is not so defined by um, by conquest and, and a sense of super, superiority, but resignation. And the, the tone of the book is so serious, but the content where you to take the seriousness out is almost like a Monty Python sketch of two peoples um, speaking past each other. Um, so tell me a little bit about what went into writing that and I, I hope I haven't um, insulted it by comparing it to a Monty Python but I, I guess you as the author understand what I mean when I say that um, well, so, so long as you like Monty Python and appreciate Monty Python <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have I wouldn't have that wouldn't have been the first choice for me to, to describe the book okay. but but um, you know Terry Gilliam of course was it was someone who cared profoundly about history and the Crusades I think so <laughs> Um, I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, you know, the book obviously was about the, the case of Asad al-Shadiyat, who was the first, he's often described as the first martyr, which suggests that there are many other martyrs that followed him. But he was one of the first, um, if not the first, Arab uh, Maronite Christians to convert to uh, not so much American Puritanism, but as an American evangelical missionary Christianity. 
um, that um, was introduced by these missionaries of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, who, who went off. These were young men, basically, the Americans. They were young men. They were, we would call them today, zealots or enthusiasts. They were completely and utterly uh, self-righteous. Um, they were not imperialists in the sense that they didn't have an empire behind them as such. They came literally on their own. Um, initially, um, they they arrived in the Ottoman Empire, which, of course, at the time was was weaker than it had been in the 18th and 17th and 16th centuries, but it was still a powerful empire. And they they were the, these people were were basically completely um, um, what's the word naive in a certain way naive and enthusiastic and, and, and intolerant and bigoted and, and self-righteous, and, but also idealists. And they, they really wanted to convert the world, and not just, by the way, not just the Ottoman Empire or the Islamic world, but the entire world. And they, they were completely sort of seized with the sort of fantasy um, of, of converting everybody everywhere. And so they, uh, they arrive in a place that they, they knew nothing about really, whose languages they knew nothing about other than maybe a smattering of a few words here and there, but they didn't, they weren't um, certainly didn't know any Arabic um, at the time when they first arrived. And, you know, some of them were more sort of convinced of the, 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 the second coming of Christ, the imminent second coming of Christ, others less so. But the point is they, they had these kinds of fantasies of what Christianity should be. And they completely dis- discounted native Arab and Eastern Christianity, as well as Judaism, as well as Islam, of course. And so they arrived in this part of the world and they were a complete sort of like, it was a fiasco in essence. And they came up against not just the Ottoman Empire and Muslims, but also, of course, Eastern Christian churches who were alarmed by the arrival of people who were intent on overturning uh, an entire way of life, basically. I want to I want to press at something that you said there because sure. unlike unlike some of the missionaries that were coming out of places like France or Britain who who in in some characterizations are really an extension of empire right yeah. they were they were creating um, I mean in some cases literally colonies uh, yeah. the the Americans were not however just to be clear they did come with the protection of empire for uh, sure they I, came with you, it. And yeah. you, you you do address that in the book. Like they came, yeah. it was actually, it must have felt overwhelming because they had documentation of Russian, British, uh, Catholic, and American uh, uh, cover, essentially diplomatic cover. Um, they, they, had, they had British diplomatic cover first and most, most importantly for them was British diplomatic cover, but they still didn't have, I mean, I think I would call them cultural imperialists in the US context where they were part and parcel of the, of the destruction of, of uh, native um, um, uh, sp- spirituality and religious forms in, in, and culture in, in, in the American context, you know, in the, in the settler colonial context. But when you transplant them to the, the Middle East or the, the Ottoman Empire, they were completely out of, um, I mean, they, they were just, they were coming up against extremely, um, 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 I would say, a, a very powerful, um, uh, and still sort of a hegemonic system that was not militarily subordinated to, to, the, to American imperialism. That's why I say it's important to, to nuance, to be nuanced about mm-hmm. this, because otherwise we say all, all, imperial, all missionaries are imperialists, and then we sort of lose, then we lose any sense, okay, well then if they are, if, then what's the point of studying anything? 
Right. You really need to figure out, okay, what, what makes these people different from others? And, and actually, to your credit, you do humanize them very well. That's one of the things that I enjoy in the book is that you get uh, a depth to these missionaries that, um, that doesn't reduce them to a two-dimensional antagonist in the, uh, the story of uh, uh, Ottoman resistance to, to imperialism. Correct. Yeah. Um, now, to shift gears to the, the content of your uh, more current book, The Age of Coexistence, Mm-hmm. You describe in some detail uh, the ecumenical frame. And, and if I've understood it correctly, the ecumenical frame is essentially the Ottoman Mashriq's response to modernity. It is the response to the question, how can the Mashriq best navigate the clumsy and involuntary transition from empire to nation state? And so far as I can tell, this frame deals with two primary problems. One is how do we define the us and them in this coming chapter of our existence? But the other is what role will Islam play in public life? So can you walk us through, first of all, if I've understood this correctly, and um, why was this the pressing issue of the time? Yeah, I mean, I would say sort of the ecumenical frame is my attempt to to say to, to say that basically you could think of it as a modern culture of coexistence. So, the the idea is exactly as you're saying. On the one hand, I wouldn't say it's a response to modernity. I would say it's an interpretation. I mean, it's not modernity is everywhere. It's universal at this point, and all cultures in all parts of the world are, gra- including, of course, in the U.S. and in Europe, they're grappling with this idea of how do you you know, where do we draw the, the, the boundaries between modern norms and um, modern ideas of citizenship, equality, um, religious diversity, and nationalism, and sovereignty? How do we sort of, how do we negotiate or balance these different imperatives? And so the ecumenical frame is, is the uh, mashriq, or the Ottoman Arab East's um, interpretation of these questions. In other words, it's the elaboration of a a culture that says we are both Arab and Ottoman, we're multi-religious, and we can be modern. And then, of course, within this, there are different interpretations. Some are more religious, some are more secular, some are in between, some are two-thirds here, one-third here. It, it really honestly depends on, on the, the person, the location, the context. But the, the point is there was a confidence in the Arab East and the elaboration of a new sense of being Arab which was quite, which was extraordinarily important because it provided the opportunity within an Ottoman sovereign frame, within an Ottoman sort of sovereignty, um, within other words, within one unified sort of political, at least in theory, political and territorial uh, landscape, it provided the opportunity for Arabs to define what being Arab was in a modern multicultural, uh, sorry, multi-religious sense. In other words, you could be a Christian Arab, you could be a Muslim Arab, you could be a Jewish Arab, and there was no contradiction mm-hmm. between these. But then, of course, that opened that begs the question. It opens up a whole other set of questions, as you said. Okay, so then, where, given that, where do you draw the line between Islam um, and the public sphere, or Islam and the state? And what exactly? Those are one of the questions. That, that was were some of the questions. There were other questions. What about women's rights? What about the rights of minorities? What about the rights of uh, 
of, of non-Muslims and so on and so forth. There were a million questions that were asked. But also then who are the minorities? Because, and who are them? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Because, and, because and, in a world where uh, the, the Muslim is the us and the non-Muslim is the them, well, okay, this was divided on some kind of sectarian boundary, but. No, but, the, but the point is, but the point is it's important to understand it wasn't just, it's not just the Muslim is us because the whole point of the 19th century is that, is that the Ottoman empire is transitioning or, or trying is being transformed both because of its own agency and because of European pressure and imperialism and because of Balkan nationalisms and because of internal rebellions and because of all many other factors. Okay. Besides, I mean, the Ottoman Empire is transforming itself from being an empire of, I mean, the, the, the phrase that Karen Barkey uh, uses is an empire of difference. In other words, a Muslim empire that ruled over Muslim and non-Muslim subjects, profound inequality, but yet multi-religious, multi multilinguistic, multi-ethnic. In, in, in sort of the Ottoman sense, how do you transform that into an empire of citizens, allegedly nominally equal citizens, irrespective of the religious affiliation? So the whole question of who we are in the 19th century is up for debate. Right. And so the quote is, is redefining what it means to be Ottoman, what it means to be Arab, what it means to be Muslim, what it means to be Christian. And then everyone has, in a sense, a question of affiliation, secular affiliation. Are we Muslim first and foremost, or are we Ottoman first and foremost? Are we both? How are we compatriots with Christians? How are we Christian Arabs or Arab Christians? And so on and so forth. I mean, they're, they're, and, yeah. and that last that last bit right there is what, what I was uh, what I was sort of getting at because um, uh, depending on how you answer that question, whoever falls on the outside changes. Uh, so if we're a primarily Arab people, for example, well then the Kurd uh, loses. Right. The, the, uh, right. Except, the... except in an Ottoman context, there's a bit of and there's a bit of there's a lot of ambiguity here because, of course, in an Ottoman context, you have one sovereign that right, claims right. that everyone is Ottoman, right. and so you could be Kurdish and uh, you know Kurdish and Ottoman, and you could be Arab and Ottoman. You could be. You see what I'm saying? So there's there's this, there's a lot of ambiguity because the Arabs didn't have, of course, um, independence or their own sovereignty at this point. Um, the exploring this content at this time has been a very humbling experience uh, because the, the truth is that the lines are very muddy. They were. Over, uh, so uh, I, I'm currently reading um, Bashir Nafa's um, uh, Arabism, Islamism, and the, and the Palestine question. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I got the, the order of the title wrong. Yeah. But the, the line between, even in the interwar period, of who is an Arabist and who is an Islamist is very blurry. Um, and even Correct. as I kind of read it again, uh, I, I've, I've, and you could perhaps tell me if I've, um, if I've applied a, a good enough tool here, but I've sort of considered it a matter of a spectrum where some people were slightly more uh, secular, but um, were more, what's the word, unitarian in their view of uh, putting together uh, the Ottoman puzzle mm -hmm. kind of back together. Some people were more religious, but independence figures. Um, and some people were the, the opposite of those things. So they were yeah. both independent and secular. Um, and they just kind of on this matrix between independence, unity, secularism, and Islamism, uh, all floated on these very, very muddy and gray boundaries. Well, and also you could add minoritarianists and you could also add, you know, there's a whole other realm you could also add to that. I mean, yes, it is an extremely, I mean, the whole point is that it's an extraordinarily complex uh, landscape in the in the late 19th, early 20th century. And what we're talking about, of course, is an Ottoman Empire that is on the one hand in military decline at one level, 
On the other hand, it also was opening a space, especially in the Arab East, for these new identities to emerge and these questions and debates. And that's why we locate the Nahda or the Arab Renaissance in this Ottoman period. And we often think of it now after the Ottomans as an Arab Nahda, but of course it's in an Ottoman context that it's taking place. So that's important to bear in mind. The other thing to bear in mind is that in the Arab East, unlike the Balkans, we did not have until, uh, in fact, we didn't have until the very end of the Ottoman Empire, we didn't have um, um, ethno-religious nationalisms in the Arab East. In other words, that's actually one of the most distinctive aspects of the of the ecumenical frame. That, in other words, the Ottoman impulse to transform from an empire of difference to an empire of citizens was actually actualized to a large extent in the Arab East in a way that it wasn't or couldn't be in the Balkans and in Anatolia, because there you had massive ethno-religious nationalist conflicts, which are not ancient, of course. These are very modern uh, conflicts, but that sort of uh, put paid to the idea of of, uh, of a, a revitalized Ottoman um, um, modern ecumenical sort of culture. That, you see what I'm saying? So there's no nationalism in, our, in, in the in the Mashriq as much as there was in in the in the Balkans. I uh, completely understand what you're saying, and, and we started off the conversation speaking about the kind of cultural despair that we that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. But it almost seems like by the late 19th to early 20th century, you almost had. I'll tell you the sense that I get is precisely the opposite. To, to borrow from, you know, uh, Rashid Khalidi says in, in Palestinian Identity, and mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing here, but he talks about the early 20th century in Palestine, and he says that um, the future seemed pregnant with possibilities, most of them positive. Yeah, of course. That's all. That's why we call it a Nahda, a Renaissance. The whole right. point is that this was a this was a, this was a a moment where you had sort of cities were 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 thriving schools were being opened up the ottoman state was sort of expanding despite its military decline vis-a-vis europe it was still nevertheless expanding the possibilities of what it meant to be ottoman mm. schools theaters you know i mean there the urbanization there was a massive increase in all these um, aspects in the ottoman empire so it was precisely this idea that people had it within their power to change their world for the better so I think that's really an important aspect, as opposed to today, where where we live in the shadow of of unrelenting cynicism and 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 despair, because the situation in the Arab East today is so desperate. You have, on the one hand, you know, the, the the aftermath of the U.S. invasion, not just of Iraq, of course, but the destruction of secular Arab nationalism. You have the despotic various despotic states. You have, of course, the Israeli brutalization of the Palestinians and colonization of the Palestinians, and you have a thousand other issues besides the collapse of Lebanon. The crushing of of of, uh, of uh, democracy in Syria and in Egypt and so on and so forth. I mean, yeah, the situation is very different today. The geopolitics today has has completely. I mean, there was of course geopolitics in the 19th century, but my point is, in the 19th century, in the and into the 20th century in the Arab East, the geopolitics allowed for the possibilities of imagining a new future in a way that today it's about sort of shutting down people's I- imagination. And um, and these these ideas, this project, it uh, and this is one of the things that I, I talk about in the podcast. They never, from from the time that the ideas made contact with oxygen, you know, from the time that they were, they were always under unrelenting colonial pressure, right? One hundred percent. There was never a moment where the Ottoman Empire kind of got to take a step back and say, No, not at all. Ourselves. 100%. But you could respond to colonialism in different ways. Right. You can engage in like you can engage with colonialism in very different ways. You could you could as 
as some of the CUP sort of leaders did, you could sort of, you know, in the end, uh, uh, respond to European imperialism by, by becoming extraordinarily brutal towards your own population, the Armenians and, and the Armenian genocide, culminating in the Armenian genocide. Um, but you could also respond as as many Arab subjects did in the 19th century and 20th century, beginning with Butrus Bustani, but going all the way through to the end by, by trying to elaborate what it means to be a modern sort of uh, a civilized, quote unquote, civilized um, subject and citizen, you know, and, and how do we do it by bringing together Muslims and Christians mm -hmm. or Muslims and non-Muslims in a common sort of sphere? You well, know what I'm saying? Yeah, a, a new idea yeah, of yeah. what it means to be civilized. That's that's also uh, one response to, uh, to European sort of intrusion. I want to ask you about uh, about uh, you mentioned Butros al Bustani, and I want to ask you about 1860 mm -hmm. um, because uh, the the violence of 1860 is something that you describe as a mm -hmm. watershed moment in the history of the Mashra. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about. Uh, tell us more about this event and about the Nahda that it created. And mm -hmm. was it understood as a watershed moment in its time? Okay, well, it depends on, of course, again, historian is always going to tell you it depends on who and who, who we're talking about specifically. Okay. But there's more than one event, remember, in 1860. There's, there's a set of events that takes place in Lebanon, in what we today call Lebanon, Mount Lebanon, mm -hmm. where, where basically Maronite Christians and Druze are involved in what is essentially a civil war between them, um, or at least a conflict between them, which culminates in massacres. The Maronites get defeated in, in, in a certain part of Mount Lebanon and they're massacred by, by Druze, uh, by Druze um, fighters. Um, and then there is in July, and this is in sort of uh, June of 1860. And then July of 1860, there's a massacre of Christians in Damascus. Uh, and it's the largest single massacre of Christians that takes place in the entirety of the Ottoman period. Um, in, in, in Syria. Um, and yet in this massacre, which um, European missionaries, European consuls, the European press, including Karl Marx, by the way, and many others uh, wrote about, uh, it, it sort of captured the imagination of Europeans as an example of Muslim barbarism and, and Islamic uh, savagery uh, in, their, in their view, of course. Never mind the fact that, you know, the United States was involved in, a, you know, there were race riots in the United States, and there were uh, the Europeans had brutalized uh, different parts of the world: the French in Algeria, the British in India, and so on and so forth. Never mind all that, but there there was the, in their in their view, this was a particular sort of uh, indictment of Islam and of Muslim civilization, and uh, and they sensationalized this and they orientalized this, but they also responded to this. They sent a commission of inquiry um, to to the region. The French even sent an army and compelled the Ottomans to accept, uh, at least for a temporary basis, a French army uh, in, in the Levant. And they uh, joined the Ottoman state in sort of a commission of inquiry or an investigative committee to find out what happened and then to judge the perpetrators. Um, and, and so this was considered by the Ottomans to be a moment of truth in the sense that they had to prove that they were modern and civilized and the equals of the Europeans by judging those who had, in their view, um, you know, um, embarrassed the empire and defamed the empire and defamed Islam. My point is that it, it was a, it was a huge sort of um, uh, event, a major crisis, an Eastern question crisis. And the question for people on the ground was, well, how do you respond to this, the, the, these terrible scenes in Damascus as well as in Mount Lebanon? 
do you become and and it's sort of it's sort of in a sense it's it's exactly like today there's a parallel to what's happened it's not exactly like today but it's there's a parallel to what's happening today in places like iraq and syria do you respond to sectarian massacres and antagonism by becoming more sectarian by saying this is it and we have to defend ourselves and we have to do whatever is necessary to protect ourselves or do you say okay this is a moment of truth and we need to transcend this and we need to build a common culture so that these kinds of events never occur again. And Bustani, who was himself Maronite originally, a Maronite Christian, who, uh, who had, was in Beirut during the times of the massacres, and nothing happened in Beirut itself, although it, there was an influx of refugees. Um, Bustani, who was a Mar- had been a Maronite, had converted to American um, uh, evangelical Protestantism, um, was profoundly affected by this and and realized right away that there was an absolute and urgent need to what he said to awaken the people of Syria. And by the people of Syria, he meant all the peoples, like all the religions of Syria. And by Syria, it's not Syria as in the modern state of Syria, but the region of Syria, which includes, of course, Lebanon today. Uh, and, and and sort of to to basically awaken them to the, the reality of their heritage and their history and their sort of their history of coexistence and to spark that again how to do that by building um, a new school what he called a national school and so in other words for bustani the idea was the way to respond to this is not to become embittered but in fact to transcend our our sort of the our sort of human sort of failings and our our sectarian passions rise above that and build a common future build a national culture Based on the idea that the that the state and the the nation is the is is the is the um, uh, belongs to all, so each community, each religion, would contribute a building block mm-hmm. to this sort of much larger nation that's multi-religious in Bustani's view. So 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 he opens up a school, a famous school uh, after the massacres, precisely because he realized that there were people who were going to become more sectarian. Now, um, and t- one of the things that you describe actually in both of your books is the fact that Mount Lebanon, uh, contrary to kind of our, our current projection of the past, was not divided primarily on sectarian grounds, but was divided more, if I've understood your work correctly, on a type of class basis where the the notables of Mount Lebanon, be they Druze or Maronite or Sunni or or Shia or or any other, whatever, uh, their sectarian complexion, all negotiated with one another, interacted with one another, and they all had their patrons, or or sorry, their their clients, uh, people, peasants, uh, uh, the awam who depended on them. Um, And Butros al-Bustani was very much part of that system. And in his envisioning of the ecumenical frame, he didn't really desire to overturn that. Now, did he? Well, I mean, again, that, that's a, I mean, that, that's a, a, a complex question. And <laughs> it's not that he didn't, it's, Bustani was not a, a revolutionary in the sense of uh, uh, being a militant activist revolutionary. Oh. Mm-hmm. And he's often accused, as you, as you mentioned earlier, he's often accused of being, quote unquote, an elitist. Um, but if you think about what his actual sort of school and the pedagogy of the school, this national school, and remember this school was, 
was uh, recognized, and the Ottoman the Ottomans rewarded him for his work, his pedagogical, and of course his his literary work. Um, so he was recognized by the Ottoman state as an embodiment, at least in theory, an embodiment of this ideal type modern Ottoman subject citizen. And so what happens with Bustani is that, you know, he he didn't he certainly did was not sort of. Um, what we would call a militant, as I said, or or, but he was radical in the, in what he was proposing. Mm-hmm. The idea, because of course he's he's at this he's at this juncture, as the empire is shifting from an empire of difference of Islamic hegemony, basically, um, towards an empire of citizens. He's proposing a model, of saying, okay, this is how we achieve this, and the way we achieve this is by creating a nation where each religious community is safe unto itself, to be respected for what it is. Um, so in this sense, he's actually breaking also with the missionaries themselves, who, who of course, their idea was that everyone should become an American Protestant, right, or, right, or okay. some version thereof, you know, to the best of their abilities and capacities. Because remember, they were always being judged by the missionaries as being deficient, culturally deficient, culturally inferior. And Bustani didn't have any of this. Bustani said, "No, I, I don't want that American vision. That's not appropriate. Doesn't make sense in our part of the world." Um, but what does make sense is building a modern, multicultural, multi-sorry, uh, multi, a multi-religious nation, a modern, multi-religious nation where we very clearly separate um, the state, the secular state on the one hand, from uh, people's private faiths. So in that sense, he, he's there's something quite radical about that. Now, again, he wasn't saying we should overthrow the social order, uh, but of course, what he's proposing is the education of people, of boys, uh, and eventually girls as well. So he's proposing the education of people, um, and in that sense, there's something quite interesting about about his project, and quite radical. Even though he wasn't a radical in the sense of advocating revolution, you said something interesting a moment ago, and it actually reminds me of some of a question that I posed to uh, Professor um, Michael Province about what was the ideal Ottoman that the uh, that the Ottomans had envisioned uh, to be to emerge from the Tanzimat. And in a way, I guess what you're saying is that Bustani was, in a sense, what they were hoping to get out of, at least. Well, the in, in, in of the one, yeah, in one sense, in one sense, in the sense that Bustani wasn't advocating uh, uh, separating from the Ottoman state. He was sort of, you know, paying homage and respect to the Ottoman state. So in that sense, he also wasn't a revolutionary at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, on the other hand, that's not, I wouldn't say that's what the Ottomans sort of wanted as such as their primary goal. Remember, as I said in the book, that Tanzimat has two aspects to it. One aspect is sovereignty. Mm-hmm. The whole region for the whole reason and the imperative for reform is that the Ottomans were desperate to maintain the territorial integrity and the political integrity of their state. Mm-hmm. And so that was first and foremost that the, 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 the goal, the imperative, the priority of the Re- Reformation. The non-discrimination and equality of citizens and the elaboration of modern citizenship is a secondary aspect. These are the two aspects of the of the empire. Right. So, the, so as far so the, so I would say that the, the the protecting the sovereignty of the state and doing whatever was necessary ultimately to protect the sovereignty of the state, including doing some terrible, brutal things, obviously in the name of protecting Ottoman sovereignty. That was the imperative, and then everything else is secondary. But in the Arab East, because the conditions. The geopolitical, the political, the social um, conditions were such it allowed for that second aspect, the non-discrimination aspect, to emerge, and Bustani embodied that. 
Yeah, the, uh, the, by the time this airs, uh, my listeners will have listened to three or four episodes of me trying to, <laughs> trying to walk my listeners through the, uh, uh, the creation of, uh, of a state. And, and a state, I define that as an institution that possesses a monopoly on violence. So the creation of a modern that, that, state. That, that, is, that is a Weberian definition. Yeah, uh, that, it's, it's, uh, it's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but um, so the creation of a state and uh, the creation of a nation as a common story, and these two distinct things kind of coming. Um, but remember uh, that, but that, that never ha- that that's that's the ideal everywhere in the world. Every modern state has a similar kind of ideal, and, right, nowhere, yes. and, and nowhere is it sort of. And that's the other part of the book, by the way. The, the part that maybe we could talk about is that is that it's also addressed to readers to tell them, look, the American and the European stories are not, in a sense, you know, better. Than than mm-hmm. our story in our in our part there 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 is extraordinary contradiction in all parts of the world, including well, in the American and European aspects. Uh, uh, Michael Province uh, took me to task on this, in fact, in our conversation when he mentioned that um, we speak about education reform and things like that in the Ottoman period as if it wasn't happening elsewhere. Exactly. But in reality, these processes were happening everywhere and everyone was in negotiation about what it means to be us and what it means to be them. Um, I'm, uh, I'm currently reading um, Salim Derengel's um, uh, The Well-Protected Domains. Yeah. And he does a fantastic job of articulating exactly this, that the, the Russians and the Japanese and the Germans were undergoing um, uh, similar negotiations. Now, one except, of the, except except we're being colonized at the same time. Yes, that yeah. that unrelenting uh, pressure yeah. Yeah. that is happening uh, that is happening at the same time, and, and there's there is something else that is that is different. I mean, there's there's a lot that's different. Yeah, there's a lot. That, yeah. <laughs> but there there's one important thing that I want to highlight in this conversation that's different is that there is this dance between equality and tolerance that the Ottomans are renegotiating um, that maybe was uh, not present in other circumstances because their cultural basis was different. So it, it, you spend a lot of time on this and, and I'll try to frame the question as, as succinctly as I can. So historian Karen Barkley, who you mentioned earlier, she kind of explains that the success or health of coexistence kind of ultimately depends on our expectation of future interactions. And uh, I'm not even sure if she's the, the first person to mention this, but this is where I, where I got it from. And uh, she kind of says that communities can and will coexist peacefully if they believe that tomorrow will be as good or better than today. But in your account of the Mashriq uh, in the Tanzimat era, it seems that the success of intercommunal life isn't the primary priority in applying the reforms. Uh, a, a much more central theme seems to be an exploration of how to get the European bear off of the back of the high port. Um, and, and this is something that- For the, so for far, the Ottoman state, you mean? For the Ottoman state, yes. Yeah. And this continues yeah. into the interwar period with the successor projects uh, all the way through. So it's not really about what's best for us, but really, how do we get them to leave us alone? No, it's actually both at the same time. I mean, that, that's okay. the complexity. I mean, that's Great. the whole point. Let's, the let's dialectic <laughs> that both are it's both at the same time. And that's the dialectic. And that's the 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 promise and the tragedy of 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 the Middle East, the modern Middle East. Remember, this is the the last part of the world that's formally colonized by the Europeans mm-hmm. after World War One in the right. name of in the name of self-determination and religious freedom. 
the perversity of European colonial thought and, and Wilsonianism for that matter. So the idea of colonizing in the name of self-determination. Um, and so I, I think it's both, it's both this, this, this relentless European pressure that you've alluded to, this colonial pressure that takes different forms and different guises that itself is not static, it changes. So before the 19th, before the uh, before World War One, the Europeans didn't colonize in the name of self-determination. They usually typically colonized, or intruded, or or uh, impinged upon the integrity of the Ottoman Empire, in the name of protecting religious minorities or communities, whether they were Catholics, or whether they were uh, other communities, Orthodox. In the case of the Russians, they would sort of intervene on behalf of these communities. After World War One, they intervened in the name of self-determination. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so, so even the Europeans, that, that's one kind of relentless, although dynamic impact. On the other hand, you also have, as you said, there's a sort of attempt to negotiate what, what all cultures and all, all cultures in the world are, are negotiating in this period, which is to say, how do we sort of, what does it mean to be civilized? What does it mean to be modern? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean to be a nation? And where yes. do we draw the line between sort of... Uh, you know, uh, diversity or pluralism, we would say today, or diversity we would say today, and sovereignty and an effective well, sovereignty. Uh, you know, you're you're the guy who wrote the book, so I, I'm going to ask you a question that um, the uh, it's it almost in in the um, in the context of a modern liberal democracy is an almost blasphemous question to ask. But is for the mushrik is a society that is predicated on equality fundamentally better than one that is predicated on tolerance? Well, I mean, tolerance, of course, is, is again, tolerance. What kind of tolerance are we talking about? Uh, I, mean, and I, I don't see these as, as mutually exclusive. <laughs> I mean, tolerance, I mean, pre-modern empires and early modern empires tolerated in the sense that they, they, they would accept for certain periods and in certain conditions what we would call religious pluralism in their empire. They tolerated various communities, they, uh, which are not, by the way, only religious communities. They, they tolerated various ethnicities, various communities. In other words, they tolerated the multi-ethnic and multi-religious aspect of their empire, in part because they had no choice, and in part because they, they wanted, that they were completely okay with the idea of a multi-ethnic and multi-religious empire, so long as subjects were quiet, I mean, were, were subordinate, mm-hmm. and paid their taxes, you know, and, and were deferential uh, in, the, in the necessary ways. And so that, that's 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 one form of tolerance, and then equality is is a, is this nineteenth century problem that emerges, not just in the Ottoman Empire, everywhere in the world it emerges. And right. as we know, the U.S. grappled and still grapples profoundly with this question of equality, and and the European empires, uh, European states also grappled with it. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? So my point is that yeah. that they they there's this constant interplay between tolerating something and equality. I mean. There, there's a difference. I, I, I completely and uh, and I need to disclose you you've you've lived in my head uh, rent free since I've <laughs> since All I've right, read your book, since I've, since right. I've read your book and um, you know one of the things that so the 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 negative externality of equality is sameness right is a is a, a pressure to uh, to get people to kind of conform to a particular standard. Um, yeah, but, not, but not necessarily sameness. That's, that's what makes the mushrik so interesting and the ecumenical frame mm-hmm. so interesting. It's equality and difference. 
Mm-hmm. It's a quality and profound religious difference. There is right. no attempt or pretense that everyone is the same. There's no pretense that Christmas and Ramadan are the same. Right. You, you, you respect the difference of each tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the question is then, how do you interpret each tradition? And the issue I have with it, with what the earlier quotation you were talking about, Karen Barkey, is, is that it, our part of the world is not just communities. There are communities, they're also individuals. There's also mm-hmm. dissent within communities. Right. I mean, communities themselves are diverse. And so we often talk about Sunnis and Shias and, and, and everyone else as if these are like, like um, homogenous groups that don't change and have no internal sort of diversity. And they do. Or debate and dialogue. Yeah, or debate and dialogue. And yeah. so there's, there's, I mean, my point is, let's open the yeah. questions rather than sort of preclude a whole line of questions. Yeah, and uh, you um, you describe in uh, Artillery of Heaven, you describe uh, Asad uh, Shadiak as uh, the ultimate victim of tolerance. Like the, the Ottomans were so tolerant of the Maronites that they let him tor- uh, that they let they let the church torture him to death, essentially. Well, um, they didn't. They did. They, they. I think they barely knew about him. They barely recognized yeah, okay. him at all. They didn't. Yeah. Whatever. This is out in the out in the uh, out in the margins of, of right. the real imagination. They were just not fundamentally interested in this kind of, 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 right. of story. I, um, I have one more question for you here, sure. um, uh, and, but, it's a, <laughs> but it's a big one. So uh, I've spent, I don't know, the last two years or so just hyper-focused on Ottoman Palestine and the late Ottoman Empire. Sure. And um, I've seen the way that understanding, that our understanding of the present has sort of polluted our understanding of the past. And uh, two of the conclusions that I've slowly formed or that are kind of forming in the, my imagination is the first, the mid to late Ottoman Empire was not the theocracy that is the dream of some or that is a nightmare of others. But the other is that the, the social and political and territorial arrangements of that same era were in almost every sense, so far as I could tell, objectively better than the post-war arrangements that were imposed upon the post-war mashriq. So, I mean, yeah, because, yeah, what's your question? So, so first of all, um, do you agree with this uh, this characterization that, firstly, that the Ottoman Empire, we have a we have a, a, a poor understanding of the Ottoman past because there was no single, pro- and you talk about this in the book, there was no single state that totally inherited the Ottoman project. Uh, in fact, the, the, for both the Arabs and the Turks, there was a, a, a selective rem- remembrance and a selective forgetting of what the Ottoman past was. But um, do you agree then that Whatever we have now, what we've been working with after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, whether we like to admit it or not, was is substantially uh, more inhibiting than what we were trying to work with uh, in the context of the Ottoman universe that we were all a part of. And by we, I mean the, the people of the Mashriq. The Mashriq, uh, I mean, that, that's again, that's a difficult question in the sense that it's, it's an interesting question. It's a fascinating question. You know, on the one hand, you could say yes, of course, with the, they were they were. I mean, they were better off at one level in the sense that there was an Ottoman territorial and sovereign whole. But the point is that that the, it's it didn't have to be worse in the post-Ottoman period. The question is why did it become so bleak and when? Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily so bleak in the 1920s and 1930s. Although I mean, there was obviously European colonialism at that point. Where but there what what happens is that the European will 
to partition, the extraordinary, talk about it, the relentless sectarian drive on the part of the British and the French to divide up this region. Mm -hmm. To divide up the region, not because people in the region were asking for division, but because, of course, it suited their imperial interests. The classic story of divide and rule. And, the, and then, of course, the whole story of Zionism and Palestine, which I talk about a lot in the book. This colonial Zionism in Palestine and the, and the, and the, the, the destruction of the possibility of being Arab Jew, an Arab Jew. This, this is a fundamental part uh, as well of, of, of the story that I, that I talk about. And so all these things coming together. And then, of course, you have oil. And then you have the U.S. sort of relationship to the region, which is primarily based on the obsession with oil and the extraction uh, and, and sort of the domination of the oil resources of the region, the support for Israel, despite of what, what it meant for Palestinians and Arabs, and then the support of dictatorships, pro-American dictatorships, wherever they may be in the region. So this architecture of hegemony, of course, it, you know, it's bleak and has sort of led to the catastrophe that we're living today. I mean, there's no doubt about that in my, in my view as a, as a historian, as a scholar, as someone who knows this region, who comes from this region, there's no question. But the question was, was that inevitable? Mm -hmm. In other words, this, I think the, the juxtaposition with the Ottomans is, I mean, if you're an Armenian living in the late Ottoman Empire, for example, it, you can't say it was better for you to be, you know, because the, the late Ottoman Empire right. became extraordinarily brutal towards various communities in the name of nationalism. The question is, why did the Europeans partition this part of the world? Why did it sort of, uh, the, why, uh, look at the irony, the perverse irony that this is the one, the mushrik, was the one part of the world, I make this point over and over again because I really believe it, the one part of the world where the question of Muslim and non-Muslim, especially Muslim-Christian coexistence, was most advanced, most elaborated, most thought about, far more than in the West, frankly, far more <laughs> than in other parts of the world. Um, and yet it's the one part of the world where the Europeans come in and deliberately divide up everyone along sectarian lines. Mm -hmm. you see, I mean, and so yes. that has, those have that, that, that imperial sort of uh, um, um, will, the extraordinary negative energy and the geopolitics that entailed uh, have, have had massive consequences, beginning with the question of Palestine, but also the question of Syria, also the question of Lebanon. And of course, ultimately, the question of Iraq today. Uh, you know, um, one of the things that always just kind of knocks me back in my seat is thinking about how uh, up until the kind of mass industrialization that came with the, the Tanzimat and the Hamidian era, it took something like three months to travel from Baghdad to Damascus. Correct. But in a way, that journey was more conceivable than the eight-hour flight that it would take now, I imagine that in in some ways there are more barriers. Although yeah, but the that's, again, but that's not because that's not because that's not because that's not because uh, f plane travel is what you're alluding to. Right. You know, travel by air is somehow worse than travel by no, by, no, no, by of whatever. Not. No, yeah, but no, the, is, the question is, is why. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the irony the irony is that our our means of communication today are vastly superior to what was there before. In terms of in terms of efficiency, in terms of ability, in terms of ease, and yet the barriers, the the political barriers, the mental barriers today, the 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 the. the but there's there's been, I mean, I don't know how to say this. But, uh, there's been a project, and someone should write about this. A project to to devastate, to colonize and recolonize, and and constantly uh, uh, the, the consciousness of people in the modern Arab East to diminish their ability to think about their past and their, their future, of course. 
by end, endlessly focusing on the present, overwhelming people so that they don't even have the option of thinking about, okay, what is it about our past that we can draw from? Mm -hmm. What threads of the past can we draw on to, to, to rebuild an emancipated future? You know, just on this, on this last note here, um, this is one of the things that, uh, I mean, my, my podcast is primarily about the Palestinian experience, and this is where I do most of my research, and mm -hmm. that there is a, 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 not just because of the Nakba, but even leading up to that was an, an annihilation of exactly what you just referred to, which is the immediate Palestinian past. So the, there's... Um, you mean after the Nakba? Uh, no, even actually before that, that there was this effort to forget that immediate Ottoman past um, to, you know, uh, 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 Lawrence has a, um, in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he says something to the effect of um, the Arabs believe in people, not in institutions. But this is buffoonery, right? The, the, the Ottomans had uh, very complex institutions um, that... Uh, I mean, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence is just like, like a crass imperial agent. Right. Lionized, lionized in the West and nowhere else. And, um, and so there's, there's all these institutions that the Palestinians leading up to the Nakba, and of course, dramatically after the Nakba, have been totally separated from. So there's hundreds of years of Ottoman knowledge, not Turkish knowledge, but Ottoman knowledge that they have no access to. That is just yeah, a, yeah, but you, but you could say the same. I mean, you, you, you to 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 a large extent, you're right, of course. But you could say the same about Lebanon and, and Syria and and many other places as well. Mm -hmm. There's been a deliberate attempt to forget the Ottoman past. Right. That's in part also because of the. I mean, in, if not in part, that's in large part because of what happened after World War One. Right. Both the Kemalist project, which also sort of you know reinterprets what it means to be Turkish. And sort of um, and dissociates from the Ottoman past, and of course from the Arabs, and the Arabs in turn, under European colonialism, dissociate from the Ottoman past as well. And so we don't learn from, we don't learn, of course, Ottoman history in any significant way in the Middle East today, um, and we don't actually learn what 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 was actually an extraordinarily complex period with negatives and positives. But the point is to, to at least appreciate that that is part of our history, as opposed to something alien. Um, Professor Moklesi, I've taken uh, way more of your time than, uh, than I had initially negotiated, <laughs> and I, I, I appreciate it. Um, before you go, uh, what are you working on now? Which must be like the most, <laughs> as an academic, like that you've just poured years of your life into this book. So now that's in the past. <laughs> What's next? What's next is going to be a, a, a project that I'm working on now that begins with the King Crane Commission of 1919, which is this American or, you know, a, an American commission of inquiry that was sent to the Mashriq, and then use that as a point of departure to talk about um, the uh, sort of the, the themes that we've been talking about, this last colonialism mm -hmm. and, and the implications of this last colonialism in terms of its relationship, like how did this last colonialism and this sort of active will of Western domination change and, and interact with the issues of pluralism in the modern Arab world? I, uh, I can't wait. Um, is there, you know, I've, I've bombarded you with questions. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish I had? No, not really. I mean, honestly, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm open to any questions. So uh, ask away.
Yeah. No, then, uh, then, then that's great. I, um, I want to thank you again for your time and, uh, I hope we can, we can keep in touch and I hope that we can keep you back as my, as my podcast progresses and I move chronologically, um, uh, you know, progressively toward, uh, toward the present. Um, I hope that we can have a few more of these conversations. I'm looking forward to them. Dr. Makbisi, thank you so much and bye for now. Take care of us. Bye-bye. Thank you.